for the evening talk. I would like to make the talk in the form of a commentary and this particular commentary is on a small piece of the writings of the 16th century mystic and saint, Saint John of the Cross. And Saint John of the Cross was born in uh, 1542 in Fontivores in Spain. It's a t small town some 20 miles away from Avila, which gave birth to another famous saint of the of the Catholic Church, St. Teresa. And his father died when he was young and he himself went into a school, a Jesuit school, and from there decided to enter into the priesthood and become a Carmelite. And in the Church, the Catholic Church, the Carmelites are, were then, and still are in fact, often regarded as one of the most austere of the various religious orders within the church. And so the vows of poverty, uh, chastity, celibacy, and obedience, and a life of monastic isolation were treated very seriously, as Carmelites still do today. And it was felt that through the austerities of that and the utter simplicity of lifestyle and the various disciplines and vows uh, which the uh, novice and the monk or priest agreed to, it would prepare the, the being, the individual for realization and for insight. And during this period of time, John of the Cross was appointed within a, a particular monastery and became engaged in some of the reforms that were taking place at that period of time. Through, it seems, some prejudice and misunderstanding, a group arrested him, threw him in prison for more than a year in a cell, some ten foot by six foot, where he had a diet, he said, of, of water, bread and sati, sardines, and was just confined to this spot, even more severe than what he had been used to as a monk and priest. And through this period of time, and through the variety of experiences that John of the Cross had, he began to record them. And one of the books, small book, a very beautiful book, and I remember reading a chapter of it each day when I was a monk called Dark Night of the Soul, which, in which he describes the experiences which one goes through in the, as it were, purification process of, of meditative awarenesses, contemplations on 
on life, on God, on truth. And another is the ascent of Mount Carmel. Again, an extraordinary number of insights, often obviously in a theistic language. And what I've done, I've just taken a few lines uh, from one of the passages of the ascent of Mount Carmel, and I would like first to read it to you, and then from there give some commentary. And it seems to me, in such writings, anyone who is going through the processes and the severities of this kind of meditative work and the somewhat monastic situation in terms of the silence, the stillnesses, the simple austerities which people are observing can resonate very well and feel a connection and intimacy with those women and men of past generations as well as present who are willing to participate for varying lengths of times in these kind of processes and all that it means for one's existence. And he writes, to come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To, to come to that which you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. For to go to the all, you must deny yourself in the all. For in coveting nothing, nothing raises itself up, and nothing weighs it down. And it is because it is in the centre of its humility. When it covers something in this very desire, it is wearied. I just like to expand on some of these lines with you and try to endeavour to bring out a little bit of the meaning. To, to come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. And I think with these kind of ways, and much commentary is given elsewhere by St. John of the Cross, I think what happens very easily in any kind of, shall we call it, spiritual activity and commitment, we tend to view it very easily from the standpoint and the references of what is past, of the old. And we have seen in our life we bring a certain amount of knowledge and experience and we bring to many things in life a kind of systematic, <coughs> mechanistic kind of view of things. In other words, we say, if I do this, and if I know that, <coughs> and if I try hard enough, and I put that knowledge and that effort and that information together and bring all that, that together, then the possibility if not the probability is by going that way of knowledge, then I will accomplish and I will achieve this 
whatever it might be. And we have been, we might say, quite programmed into this way of thinking and viewing life. It's a very strong social conditioning which we have, influencing in effect many things that we do. And because of working in this way, through knowledge, through effort, through working hard for, we have experienced, sometimes beneficially, sometimes painfully, the fruits of that way of viewing our existence. And we have needed knowledge to continue that kind of direction and process. And we know in this world, in this vastly changing world, that whatever the skill we have been trained into, we have trained ourselves into, there is so much new information that is a constant challenge and effort to keep abreast of that information, that knowledge, so that we can maintain our skill level. And I think what very easily happens, when we come into another situation like this, which we might call seeing and being in a different way in the world, we tend to bring that into this and it may not actually be very relevant at all. The whole package of the past, near and far, may not have much relevance to what we are engaged in here. And then we sometimes recall being in this situation in the past and then we have knowledge of that which we call memory. And we say to ourselves, when I was doing this before in such a place, in such a situation, then I experienced after so many days this kind of effect. And we remember that. We remember the experience. We remember the result of the experience, painful or pleasurable, insightful or dull or whatever it may be. And we think, ah, that's how it went before, along those lines. Therefore, perhaps in coming into this situation, it will go along those lines and I will, it will be like that or different from that. And I'm using, whoever the I is, my knowledge of the past to view the present. And he says, to come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. So there's an invitation to us to cast aside all this accumulated knowledge and experiences in which have gone by and be make the journey from a position of really not knowing what this is all about, having no idea at all where it will lead, if it will lead anywhere. And so starting in that foundation of spiritual of, we might call it, if it's not too ambitious a concept, innocence, 
simplicity, humility, naivety, or whatever, and make that a founding principle of this activity. In which we can say, with all honesty, that we don't know what tomorrow will be, and not only that we don't know what tomorrow will be, actually we don't know, and we don't care, and it doesn't really matter at all. So that we can keep the flames, this is a concept that John of the Cross uses in other passages, we can keep the flame of not knowing and all that's required in not knowing alive within ourselves and somehow have some trust and faith in that. And what we see sometimes that the sensation of that is expressed inside of ourselves as some form of insecurity. And the past and the influences of the past will come in with lightning speed and will say to us, being insecure is unsatisfactory, unacceptable, and what do I have to do and what do I have to know in order that I don't feel insecure? And it's remarkably difficult for us in feeling insecure and loving that sensation. <laughs> so when we begin and when we are stripping away this accumulated knowledge of information and experience and it's dropping away and we're feeling we don't know, we don't know what's going on, we're feeling insecure. Can there be an intimation there that we're in the right place at the right time, in the right spot, in the right frame of mind? So this kind of work, this stripping away kind of work, goes in stark contrast to the mainstream of social messages which says, be secure, for heaven's sake, for God's sake, for your own sake, don't be insecure. <laughs> so the old methodology of living doesn't apply to the spiritual paradigm of finding out what it is about not knowing. And John of the Cross goes further and he says, to come to that which you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. And when we look at ourselves and we look at the whole idea of possession and possess 
sing. It seems like it's a certain form of relationship with the world in which I and my particularly are features, indispensable features of possession. Where there is possession, where there is possessiveness, in any of its characteristics, then there's the presence of I and my, the central figure on the life stage. And we say, how, see how easily possession comes. How easily, like the tentacles of I and my, wrap itself around whatever it is, isolate whatever it is, and call it mine. Not just for language, not just as, sim as a simple referent in, in life, talking, ah, oh, that's your shaw, that's your zafu, uh, your clothes, these are my clothes for everyday language convenience. But the possessive factor, this is mine, with the holding which takes place and with it the isolation which goes with it. And when that mine, that possession, begins to change in a way that we don't want, her, him, this, that, too, and, th and there's some distancing of that possession from that possessiveness, panic. Anxiety, fear, terror, worry, confusion, pain, because the possessor doesn't actually possess the possession, the possession possesses the, the possessor. <laughs> they are both wrapped in their own imprisonment. And sometimes it's worthwhile our stopping in life and asking, wherein is I and my in its possessive form most noticeable? Where in one's existence does it most clearly stand out? What does this I, this my, become or is most possessive about? And isn't this possessiveness, isn't this the imprisonment of humanity, of individuals? Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, not just fleetingly, but in our bare, stripped-downness, the center of great theme of uh, St. John of the Cross and stripped in, stripping away where in is this possessiveness and what am I prepared to do or to investigate in order that I live unpossessively. And sometimes, again, it's just born of time. I have had this particular whatever it is. 
It means a lot to me. I've had it so long, I would hate to lose it. I'd feel terribly upset if somebody stole that. I've been with this person for so long, I couldn't bear separation. And so very easily, the memory and the idea, the thought and the feelings around time easily become a pressure of possessiveness in life in which we can't discover that which is not of possession. And of course, the very nature of things is surely has to be a remarkable teaching in itself. Who can guarantee the sustaining of a possession? One can't even guarantee the so-called sustaining of the possession of the body, let alone a lover, or a job, or a a ring that's been passed on from one generation to another, or money in the bank, or whatever the clinging is these days. So sometimes, in, you know, looking in and uh, stripping away and probing deep in ourselves, as the message of that text is, am I willing to live free from possessiveness so that when I'm talking, when I am thinking, when I am seeing those things which are, so to speak, around me, my everyday life, I see there are just things which are around me in my everyday life. That's all. And then St. John of the Cross continues. Now he starts challenging us now. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. And I think it, in a way, it's, when I read that, it's like it's bringing it back to us yet another step closer. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. I think one of the ways that this shows itself in life is particularly through roles. I think there's a lot of puncturing of social mythology around roles. We are living in a world where the perception of a role becomes equivalent to what we are. The, the idea of the role becomes who we are. Somebody says, who are you? You utter two names and a number, age, and uh, location, and often we, know, we say job, work social uh, way of talking about ourselves, 
And when we think about ourselves, again and again, it's often through, just through the role. The conception of self, of me, is intricately bound up with the role. So each one of us has these changing roles. Sometimes a worker, a student, a, a teacher, a parent, a son, uh, a daughter, a friend, a traveller, whatever it might be. And so the thought world, the feeling, the ideas, the memories, the, the conceptions, all about ourselves go through and relate to the role. And we might ask ourselves, is that really what we are? Can, one, can there be a role which has any substance to it? Where is the role? Where is it? Outside the image. Outside the idea of what I, through which I see another or through which I look at myself. I can't see the role in the world, but I, the idea sparks and say, oh, that's who he is, that's who she is, that's who I am through this image. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. Sometimes the role is the role of the meditator, popular role in this room at the moment. <laughs> so with the image and the idea comes in sitting in this hall, I am being the meditator. I'm not just sitting on the earth watching the video go by. I'm sitting on the earth doing my practice in order that I will so that I'll be able to be possibly a better meditator morning and evening when I go home. I make a role for myself. I want to keep this role and I want to carry this role before breakfast in the morning. And so we build up very easily yet another kind of identity, another kind of role which we hope others will notice. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's very important in any role that others notice. <laughs> so they notice that we're very contemplative and deep. <laughs> And we want to notice and feel that in and through ourselves so that the role and the image of that in some way is sustainable, is allowed to persist and when we want to keep that role of ourselves one thing we hate is to lose it. 
We hate for it not to be accepted by other people. You've done all these retreats and all this meditation, you're just the same as you were before you went. So, in this we easily set up the old state of mind, bring it into the situation, try to fix it and keep it, and St. John of the Cross says you must go by the way in which you are not. And I wonder if for us, sitting can just be sitting in the quietude and the silence and in the simple austerity and support that we give to each other in here. In which being in here, or in the walking, or in the eating, or whatever the activities are, there's just that quiet community support. Just people, the living generation, who form the living present, just being together. Just quietly sitting, quietly walking, no special role, no special identity, nothing worth possessing, no particular knowledge available, so that in that stripped-downness of things, and in the not-knowingness of that stripped-down things, we are just being together. not knowing if it leads anywhere, not even being concerned, as I said, if it, if it does. And then he goes on, down of the cross. For to go from all to the all, you must deny yourself of all in all. And <coughs> I think in this area, I think there's a lot of concern and issue and in recent years in the field of spirituality and in the field of psychotherapy there's quite a lot of exploration taking place and that exploration sometimes focuses itself around needs and denial and what this means for us. And it seems to me at times there is both sometimes some pain and confusion. And I think one of the ways that this shows itself is sometimes a person says, and it gets almost into the rhetoric of language of situations like this, as for example, um, I shouldn't deny myself. And this I shouldn't deny myself, maybe, maybe a license inside of oneself to just go after what one wants. It can, it can take that kind of form. So what one has sometimes in a more crude form is this kind of prosperity consciousness which one hears about, in which I shouldn't deny myself, therefore I perceive the world as simply as a resource, a finite resource of course, for getting what I want because right now that's what I need. 
And I think this not only puts immense pressure on the world, immense pressure on other human beings, but what we are often aware, not aware of, it puts immense pressure on ourselves to get what we need. And when we succeed, we may have the satisfying and the pleasurable sensation of that which has a terribly short life to it, only for the need to be reborn again in consciousness, and it starts up, this is what I need. And I think the danger here is that we haven't probed deep enough to what's the movement going on with that need. In other words, what are the supportive factors that go with it. And I don't think the world can ever satisfy need. I don't think there's any end to that. And what very easily happens is too much swing the other way which has been the bane of religious life. In which one has suppressed need, tried to bring in a way of being in the world which says, I should not have these needs. And then one is in a conflict in the polarity between I have these needs and then some spiritual view, I should not have these needs, not by now with all this meditating I've done, blah, blah, blah. And the mind will live in this eternal conflict of shoulds and should not needs and needs not. And I think it requires in that kind of movement inside of ourselves to stop and to see well, what else is going on. What difference is it going to make if I get this sensation through eye, ear, nose, tongue or touch to liberation, to being an emancipated woman, an emancipated man. Because what we're, when we say need and what I want from the world, we're saying there is some sensation which I want the world to give me and which I am prepared to do anything to get so that I get this sensation inside and it will relieve me of this need. And I don't think peace can come through that way whatsoever. And I don't think peace comes through rejection of it. I think it comes through wisdom. And we are converting this world into a field of sensation to satisfy and the world can't bear this. So in the language here of John of the Cross, I think deny here means, in the way of the framework of the prose here, it means that kind of understanding and wisdom in life in which stripping back 
and stripping down is such that we are willing to be to stop and willing to look at this idea around needs. There's appropriate responses to our relationship to the world. Sight in sights and sounds, smells, tastes and touch. Through this we gain the access to the world. What is it when, since this is our everyday experience, since you and I will not know the world outside of the senses and the responses to it, what is it that we say is lacking in the here and now of sights, sounds, smells, tastes and touch, which brings out of me such a rejection of it that I keep saying to myself, I need something other than these sights, sounds, smells, tastes and touch. And how very easily we get caught up in rejecting this field of sights and sounds and wanting and believing and opting for another only in the very passage of time to reject that and opt for another one. How can there be peace living like that? So it seems to me at times in, in, ways, in a way that we don't see and we don't hear and we don't smell and we don't touch and we don't respond to we don't recognize what we're living in in every moment and when we don't recognize what we're living in every moment how can we know the all Then John of the Cross goes on. For in coveting nothing, nothing raises it, raises it up, and nothing weighs it down, because it is the center of its humility. For in coveting nothing, nothing raises it up, and nothing weighs it down because it is the center of its humility. I think coveting, you know, it's an old uh, concept, biblical concept, which is being used here. And one, a concept which we often don't use in our everyday language. But I think coveting, what it communicates to me is, I wish I had that, or I wish I knew that, or I wish I was like that person, or I wish I appeared like that person, or whatever it might be. And this coveting, reaching out to, to take up, in the very movement of that, must imply I am unsatisfactory. And the movement outward, to the degree that we do that, it's a movement away from. But it even goes more subtly than that. Because 
we even covet the very mental states and the physical states which are going, going on. The, the, play, the pains and the pleasures, the, the joys and the frustrations that are going on with the, with the walkings and with the sittings. We even covet after that. We say, oh, nothing's going on. I'm just sitting here, nothing's, nothing's happening. If really if something was happening, it would be, at least I'd have something to work on and to deal with. And then we start coveting after something. And then when something is happening and going on and there's pain and agitation and this and that, you say, ah, oh, I wish nothing was going on. Why can't I just be peaceful? <laughs> Whatever. So the movement towards and the reaching out for the very action of that implies in its character a rejection and a denial and uh, frustration with. It's, it's like it's never all. It's never enough. And this, it's never enough syndrome breeds pain conflict, disharmony, lack of peace. And when is it going to be, when is the time for us going to be such that in our relationship to life we can say with ourselves, this is enough. And to say, this is enough. And when our cells say that to us, then peace will emerge. Then the all is being revealed effortlessly and easily. And that's the centre of this humility. No special knowledge. Nothing to possess. Nothing to hold on to. Nothing to covet. Then we might say of this, that in this there is a humility. We don't know if it's going anywhere, we don't know where it's leading, we don't have any reference for the past, we don't have any knowledge, we don't have any information, we don't have any kind of reference. This must be surely a, a genuine humility. And then it concludes, when it covers something to this very desire, it is wearied. The way I would understand of that is the weariness, a tiredness, begins to occur in the desire to pursuit of more and more knowledge, to the pursuit, pursuit and holding on to possessions, to the clinging and identification with the roles, to the coveting after this, that and the other, one begins to feel inside, as John of the Cross says, particularly many times in Dark Night of the Soul, one begins to be weary 
of doing this. One sees it's not really leading anywhere. And in that weariness of that way of acting and living in the world, then that, as he says in those different lines, that which we are, which we know not of, becomes accessible. That which we don't know becomes available. That which is not of possession, not of role, not of coveting, becomes obvious. That which is all is revealed. And I think in our time and in our days here, in our being here together, this wisdom, these simple realizations, and the very spirit of what you and I are participating in here together is in that very same spirit of what was taking place 400 years ago with John of the Cross. And he didn't have an easy life at all, constantly hounded, constantly being judged. He died in his uh, 50s, a very painful uh, death, and yet this spirit of realization and awakening comes through this wonderful reservoir of religious insights and understanding about the nature of things and the liberation that comes through that wisdom, through that understanding. And I feel that we here, we're participating in that same kind of process, that same simple austerities which he refers to. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings abide in humility. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we?